Hi, and welcome to Stefan Levera Podcast, a show about Bitcoin and Austrian economics. Today for episode 348, my guest is Nick Hansen. He is CEO and founder of Luxor Technology. And Nick joins me to talk about the Bitcoin mining scene, some of the narratives around Bitcoin mining, energy use and proof of work, as well as this concept of demand response, which will be important going forward, as well as ESG, the narratives around this, the China ban, what was the impact of that, as well as Intel coming into the mining game. And at the end, we talk a little bit about hash rate derivatives. What are they and what's the relevance for Bitcoin miners? And of course, this show is brought to you by Swan Bitcoin. So this is the easy way to purchase Bitcoin and also learn about Bitcoin. Swan Bitcoin makes all kinds of resources available for free for customers. And even if you're not a customer, you can get free copies of books such as Inventing Bitcoin by Jan Pritzker or 21 Lessons by Gigi. You can get that, for example, swanbitcoin.com slash free book. Go there and you can sign up. You put in your email, you get the book for free. Swan Bitcoin also makes it really easy to give gifts to your friends and family, whether it's birthdays or weddings or something else. Go to swanbitcoin.com slash gift and give them the world-class education and customer service provided by Swan Bitcoin. Lend at HODL HODL is a peer-to-peer Bitcoin-backed lending platform where you can lend or borrow stablecoins globally and anonymously. Sign up in just 30 seconds and borrow stablecoins without any verification. Deal directly with other people and the users control collateral together throughout the whole deal with all interest paid at the end. Now, on the other hand, if you have stablecoins, you can earn extra by lending them out. You are issuing over-collateralized loans, and the full interest is guaranteed. Lend at HODL HODL. Lend and borrow stablecoins on your terms at your desired interest rates. There are no hidden fees, the terms and conditions are transparent, and users control the keys in the deal in escrow. Go and check it out. The website is lend.hodlhodl.com. Brains are a Bitcoin company through and through, and they've got some of the most unique and cutting-edge projects in the mining industry. First off, they've got Brains OS Plus. This is firmware for your ASIC machine. So you can install this aftermarket firmware on your machine, and it will help you with automatically optimizing your miner performance to get you more hash rate for your electricity bill. So if you're a miner that wants to get more sats for your buck, make sure you check out Brains OS Plus. On the website, you can see which models are supported. And don't forget, if you point your hash rate towards slush pool using BrainsOS Plus, you get 0% pool fees. So that's really cool. And they also run an analytics and insights page. So go to insights.brains.com. That website is brains with two eyes.com. And now onto the show with Nick. So Nick, Nick, welcome welcome to the show. show. Hey, how you doing? Thanks for having me. So, Nick, you're working with Luxa. You're the CEO, obviously. Uh, do you want to just give us a bit of a background on yourself and how you got into Bitcoin mining? Yeah, sure. Um, so, myself, previous to building Luxor, I was a lead member of technical staff at Salesforce working on Einstein. Effectively, um, that's their AI offering. So, imagine something like Alexa, but for Salesforce. Always been interested in crypto, was mining Bitcoin in, uh, with, with GPUs back when you could do such a thing in my basement, mostly as a hobby, just you know, really interested in the tech, trying to understand what this thing was. Uh, there were, you know, this was around the Mount Gox time and, you know, there was rife with uh, with scams and, and, you know, people didn't really know what was going to happen. And I think the entire market cap of all crypto in the world was something like $10 billion, if, if even that. And, um, you know, I was just m- mostly playing around with, with different wallets and installing things um, and then got wrecked and took a little t- took a little siesta from uh, from all of it and then really came back hard in uh, in 2016 and 2017 working on some projects that I was really interested in uh, and <clears throat> around that time met my uh, one of one of the original founders of Luxor Eddie uh, we were working on something completely unrelated to uh, to mining or, or, or Bitcoin even uh, but we we met on github uh, 
found each other on Slack and then just started building uh, what is Luxor today. We started building an altcoin pool um, because it was a lot less uh, scary to build than a Bitcoin pool. Bitcoin mining is, is was quite large to us uh, as two guys just working nights and weekends. And so we uh, started building this altcoin pool and then over time just realized we kind of have a knack for this. Uh, started uh, finding product market fit in, with some of our products and went on to go through the, the, the you know, the Luxor ecosystem, which is, you know, now much more than a mining pool. We do ASIC, ASIC brokerage, we do, uh, we have hosting services, managed mining, um, you know, all sorts of things that we do now outside of just the pool. So at this point, we're, we're really considering the pool just a feature of the broader ecosystem. And I think you can see that uh, play out in a lot of other areas of, uh, uh, you know, of mining as well, you know, Foundry and all of those, they, they don't even take any revenue from their pool. So um, anyway, that's me. That's that's how Luxor kind of got started. And that's where we're at. Um, you know, we, we, we are known for being a pool, but, but now we're, you know, quite a lot more than that. You know, we're a team of 40 now. Excellent. And so maybe if you could just spell out some of the different service offerings there, because obviously, as you're known as the pool, you've got the hash rate index, you've got equipment procurement, you've got mining advisory. Could you just spell out some of those just for people? Yeah, certainly. So mining pool, pretty basic. I think everybody knows what mining pool is. Uh, if, if you don't, it's basically what the, the thing that coordinates work between all of the work, all of the mining machines that are out in the world. Uh, you know, you hear the Marathon and Riot and all these companies bu- buying up machines while they plug into a mining pool and uh, we, we manage those. And so so the next step from there is, is procurement. So we, we you know naturally interact with a lot of miners, uh, interact with sellers of, of mining machines, and interact with with buyers of mining machines. Uh, and so it was a natural fit for us to you know facilitate that trade, uh, help people get machines from wherever they need them. Usually, uh, usually we're brokering uh, new machines, uh, but sometimes we're helping with used machines and get, you know getting that out there now uh, as one of our new product lines. And you know we've had great success with it. We launched it in quarter four of last year and helped procure almost twelve thousand machines. Uh, so it's really, really exciting to get that off the ground in the first quarter. And then, you know, and mining advisory. So, you know, a lot of people are trying to deploy into mining right now, but have never mined. Usually it's energy people. Uh, and we'll get into energy shortly. But uh, people that, you know, that don't really know how mining works, but they know how energy works. Uh, we come in and we help partner with them to find uh, ways for them to deploy that capital into mining, whether that's through uh, doing some sort of, you know, stranded capture, whether that's, uh, you know, plugging into a grid area that they have access to. Um, all sorts of different um, ways that we can come in and, and assist uh, fr- from that perspective. Um, and that's more than just uh, procuring machines. That's actually getting like containers and transformers and plugs and all of the stuff that you need and then helping them get it set up. Um, so those are some of the big ones that we're working on. And then hash rate index is what we call our, like we call that like our retail focus line, um, meaning people, we, we want people to come put their eyes on that and, and see the data that we have to share. Uh, you know, two of the most popular uh, metrics that we have are, are the, the hash price index and the rig price index. So hash price is the value of a Terra hash, Terra hash at any point in time. Uh, we really kind of started pioneering this idea in 2020. Um, and that's when that's what we built hash rate index for was to start d- displaying this idea of hash price and, and get people familiar with it and see that it's volatile and changes over time. And it's somewhat correlated with the price of Bitcoin, but not entirely. Uh, and then the other one was was the rig price, which is you know the value of mining machines as they change over time. Our product officer Guzman has spent a ton of time uh, finding data sources for that information, uh, aggregating it, uh, figuring out a, a very accurate way of, of calculating what that metric is, and then we bucket it by efficiency. So you know we've got effectively like an S19 bucket, an S17 bucket, an S9 bucket, and each of those have different prices throughout the day, and we draw really interesting insight from that. So like for example, the S9 the 
S9 series or that that uh, efficiency bucket actually uh, uh, appreciated in price much more than the S19 did during the last uh, big pump, uh, you know, late last year. So it was really interesting to see that, and we, we think that was because it was, um, you know, that's one that has come up over the uh, the what do I call the break even curve in, in a lot of places. So. Uh, anyway, those are you know, some of the product lines that we're working on. You know, we're also you know the you know spearheading and and on the leading edge of hash rate based derivatives. So financialization of hash rate, taking hash rate and using it as collateral, using it as uh, as a way to fund your operation. Um, that's something that we're you know we're going to be spending a lot more time on in 2022. That's great, and I think one thing that came out from what you were saying as well is the difficulty of actually getting good numbers on some of this. And of course, some of this comes into the energy conversation that we're having around Bitcoin and that comes up around, oh, look how much energy Bitcoin mining is using and what's the carbon emissions of that and should we be using proof of work? And of course, we should be using proof of work. But the challenge then becomes how do you educate people who aren't familiar with this? So what's your view, Nick, of the Bitcoin energy debate, as it were, uh, and sort of the current state of play of education of the broader world out there, obviously outside of our Bitcoin world. Yeah. So there, yeah, there's you know there's obviously two classes of people that we have. We have you know, folks that are really into Bitcoin and understand this, and then people that just kind of see what the media feeds them around. You know, CNN or whatever is going to say that Bitcoin uses a ton of energy. You know, these folks uh, they don't really want to dig in and understand uh, a lot of the intricacies there. So. You, you, we can do a little bit of simple math, very basic rudimentary math to kind of come up with. We, we know exactly, we, we can tell you, uh, I can't tell you exactly what the uh, amount of energy that the Bitcoin network uses, but I can tell you the amount, uh, the absolute minimum amount and the absolute maximum amount that it uses. So uh, the way that we can do that is we can use the lowest efficiency machine that's usable on the network today, which is the S9. Uh, and we can basically work backwards from the network hash rate and determine that it's around 18 gigawatts. If every machine on the mining on the Bitcoin network right now were an S9, we'd use about 18 gigawatts, which is not that much. And then if every machine were the latest gen, uh, meaning like an S19J Pro or you know the most efficient miner that exists today, it would use about six gigawatts. So Somewhere between 6 and 18 gigawatts. I don't know exactly what the number is, but that's a pretty tight range. Given that, you know, ERCOT itself generates something like 90 gigawatts itself. That's the entire network. You know, that, that's all of Texas. That's just Texas. You know, we're, we're, a, we're just a drop in the bucket. But that, I don't like that argument because we, we need to make that drop much larger. We need to become a much larger portion of the bucket to continue to secure this network. And, and so the, the next step in the argument is saying, well, uh, okay, so you don't really use that much energy, but, but you want to. So what does that mean? Right now, the, the cheapest generation sources... We use a certain amount of, uh, of this energy today, and we necessarily need to use more. So the, the natural next argument would be, okay, well, you don't, maybe you don't emit that as much carbon as, as we think you do today, but you will eventually. But right now, the cheapest sources of energy are generally the cleanest. Using uh, flare gas capture, your, your cost is effectively zero. Uh, and, and in some cases, you get paid uh, to take off that extra gas. And, and that is removing carbon that would have otherwise been, uh, it's not technically removing carbon, but it's using that energy that would have otherwise just been wasted. You know, using some of the, you know, using the sources in, in ERCOT, you know, ERCOT is very, very clean. Uh, natural gas, uh, wind and solar make up the large proportion of its, of its energy production. And by providing load to that network or that grid, the Bitcoin network is able to make that grid much more robust and able to make it you know, survive some of these events like we're seeing now, which is a good segue into kind of you know, what's happening today in, in Texas. Yeah, of course. And so this is coming up today as well because of what happened last year 
with some outages. So just for listeners who aren't familiar with what happened last year, could you just give the background on that? Yeah, so last year, um, Texas had a unprecedented cold cold snap, meaning it got much colder than than it generally gets, uh, and their grid was not able to support it. So people were gent- without power, uh, and in a place like Texas, that means a lot of people uh, that aren't used to cold weather don't have the are not prepared for it, um, being succumbing to uh, or I guess being subject to a very very cold winter. It was actually a couple of weeks, and so basically what was happening is that grid was not able to support that demand for energy. So this demand for energy was was coming, which was you know to heat homes and, and you know to keep lights on and, and do all the things that, that people do when they're when they're cold the grid was not able to so fast forward to a year uh, or fast forward a year we're, we're, they're getting ready to go through another very big cold streak here but we've had a whole year of, of some of the biggest mining companies in the world building out on the ERCOT grid uh, and and the story that they've been telling for a whole year is that we're going to use up a, a, like a bunch of extra energy and the idea is that you'll be able to produce a bunch more so say you know the idea is like let's say Houston on any given day needs uh, 50 megawatts. Well, during this cold snap, they need 150. Well, you can't build out 150 megawatts for a single city because you don't have anywhere for that extra 100 to go when the, the grid is not needing it, right? So it, it's effectively wasted. And so what, what Bitcoin miners will come in and do is they will provide that demand, uh, that base load, which is like Bitcoin mining, is this, this type of base load has never existed uh, in the world until today, this like economically incentivized base load that has effectively zero turnoff cost other than the opportunity cost. Um, and it's also instantaneously uh, rampable. So you can turn it up and down almost inst- effectively instantly, um, you know, a few seconds here and there. But this, this idea that when Houston or some city in Texas gets very cold and needs an extra 100 megawatts, well, now... Yobriot and Lancium and all of these great mining companies that have been building out in Texas will just turn off their power, uh, their, their Bitcoin mine, and let that energy flow through to the city and bolster the grid. There could be times in the summer when it's hot and people need all the air conditioners turned on that this works just as well. So the idea of building these, these uh, de- it's called demand response, these demand response centers um, really bolsters the grid and gives Bitcoin mining a phenomenal story to tell to the market. And so it comes down to how much of that is a factor, right? Because I could understand where maybe somebody might be listening, they might be a bit more skeptical and saying, well, you know, how much is that? How important is that really? Uh, the demand response part? Yeah. Well, we're, we're going to find out. So you're, you're right. So a lot of critics would say that it's actually, it's somewhat, it's somewhat of a double-edged sword for the critic here because they're saying, well, Bitcoin uses a lot of energy. But in this case, what they would say is that Bitcoin doesn't use enough energy to even make a difference on the on the grid. And we're, we're going to find out, you know, maybe maybe this this year, we've only had a year, a year in Bitcoin mining, um, Bitcoin mining, maybe may one of the slower moving uh, areas of the sector, because it takes a long time to pour concrete, build buildings, plug in machines, get them from China, all that stuff. So we only had a year to build out, you know, hard to say exactly how much capacity they built there, maybe, maybe a gigawatt over the year. But we're going to find out soon whether this is going to work out or not. Uh, you know, there have already been press releases from from Rhodium and um, and Riot about how they're spinning down their 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 capacity and letting that energy flow through to the grid and to people's homes. Uh, we'll see if it's enough this year. Yeah, and it also comes down to what is the cost of energy at this time, at this incredible peak demand time. And I think that's part of this whole argument, right? Because the argument is that during these times of incredible demand. The price of energy or electricity is going to shoot up so much so that, that these Bitcoin miners have an incentive then to 
it's rational for them to actually turn off and say, look, I'm just going to take that money, that income for turning off rather than leaving my mining going. Right, exactly. That's um, So that's actually a really good point. So they get paid uh, to, to curta- it's called curtail. They get paid to curtail uh, in, in some cases. You know, they're, they're contracted to take a certain amount of energy, um, but they also, uh, that means that in, in sometimes, it, there are times when it is pro- beneficial for them to shut off because they'll get paid to curtail. The problem that we've had in the last year is that Bitcoin mining has had such thick margins that they're willing to pay really, really high costs for that energy. Um, you know, as Bitcoin, as we reach more of an equilibrium in the price of Bitcoin and the marginal cost to produce Bitcoin, um, I believe that that will become a much, uh, a much narrower band. But right now, you know, I think I think Bitcoin, you know, Bitcoin miners could be profitable up to you know forty or fifty cents. I, I don't know that off the top of my head, but some you know some number that is much much higher than the average. You know, I think here in in Seattle, I pay uh, twelve cents a kilowatt hour. I, I think I could still mine an S nineteen very profitably. Uh, or I know that I could mine an S19 very profitably just here in my house with current market conditions. But I know that won't be the case forever because there are places that are purpose-built and doing this type of demand response uh, consumption that will that will you know eventually beat out my miner. And in that case, then we start getting to a point where the value of the hash rate and the value of the energy start to become a little bit more e- in equilibrium. Uh, and then it becomes a lot closer to the shutoff point. So you know, say the, the, the price of energy goes from, or for, you know, say for riot, the price of energy goes from whatever they pay, probably, I don't know, four or five cents, um, you know, then it goes up to, you know, uh, 20 cents, then they're, they're going to shut off. But I'm, I'm very happy to pay 20 cents to keep my household uh, warm. My, my incentives are much more external than purely profit driven. Yeah, that's a good point there. And some of that also comes into this question of cost to mine. Now, of course, this, there's so many variables that go into that. And there are profitability calculators, you can look at, okay, what machinery am I using? How efficient is it? What's my cost of electricity? And then what's my break off point or so on. And I've seen others comment that just because of various conditions today, given the energy prices, given the availability of the mining equipment, the current network hash rate, that a lot of the even publicly listed miners have actually a cost to produce Bitcoin that's quite a lot lower than the current market price of Bitcoin, which is, call it $37,000 as we speak today. Some of these miners, apparently, their cost to produce is something like $10,000 or $15,000 per coin in that range, right? Yes. Yeah, 100%. So so we, we you can go look at the public filings and see exactly how much these guys are, are mining for. But, you know, on average, I would say that some of the best miners in the in the country, at least in the US, are probably somewhere in that like 7 to 8k range that they're able to mine. But they do have to amortize the cost of their, you know, the cost of capital over that over the lifetime. So it's not, you know, that, that's how they that's how much it costs them to actually mine the Bitcoin. But then that revenue margin there between the, you know, the 8 or 9k or whatever it happens to be, let's just say they make 30k a coin in revenue, they, they also end up having to pay, they have to pay for their machines and for all their infrastructure. So there is a, a lot of uh, amortization of, of CapEx that a lot of people miss. But you know, at its very base, yeah, there's a, a lot of thick revenue to be made there. And I'm curious, and I imagine listeners are also curious, what might be the reason for that? Could it be so again, there's been this big chip shortage, and it's been difficult to create as many mining rigs as the market demand is well, as much to basically serve all that market demand. Is that part of the reason why there's that disconnect? Yeah. So, well, 
there's there's a lot of reasons. So one, yeah, it's definitely been harder to get machines than before. The, the, there's no nobody would argue that um, the number of machines getting plugged in now is uh, vastly lower than the demand, and that's because they just can't produce enough. But and I'm gonna get blown out in the comments for this. Hash rate follows price. Hash rate follows price. I don't care. We can argue about it uh, in in the comments all you want, but hash rate follows price, uh, and and that's what we see here. So hash rate is you know price generally moves a lot faster in in in, in one direction or another than hash rate. And when we see these big pumps in price, especially, you know, we've gone, let's just say we went up, you know, effectively uh, four or five X from the, the 2017 slash 18 high, you know, hash rate has not followed that trend yet. And we're getting, we're getting there. We're definitely catching back up the, the China band through a little bit of a wrench and things, but you know, hash rate is still catching up. So it's, it's definitely lagging price and we're going to get there where, you know, hash rate and, and um, you know, the, the, the marginal pr- price to produce Bitcoin is going to come up uh, and either the price of Bitcoin goes down or the marginal price just continues to rise up to that level. Um, where it becomes only profitable to mine for the most efficient miners, which is what we saw, you know, summer of 2020, that was the the record low for uh, mining profitability. Uh, and we saw actually the first time I, I think there, that, that may have been the first time, at least in my my history, that we saw the the marginal price of mining a Bitcoin bump off of what I call the, the difficulty cap. So the difficulty actually dropped a couple of times because miners were dropping off the network, it was no longer profitable to mine. And that was one of the first times we ever saw that. Yeah, so it's a, it's a range of reasons and i guess as you were saying so because that's that's one of the arguments right so the argument is does price track hash rate or does hash rate track price and i'm i'm actually with you i think it's more like you know hash rate is following price but it's like a lagging sort of indicator and there are times where maybe it wants to catch up but it can't uh, but then times where let's say yeah we're certainly right there where where if if you had more machines in capacity well right now we're actually I think we're mostly cap capacity constrained meaning we don't have enough gigawatts in the world uh, available to plug in you know, we we maybe we seg- segue into the the mining band in China because that was you know there was a lot a lot of energy in China uh, that came offline and those plugs are no longer available to plug in so we have to either rebuild them here or elsewhere uh, to to get that amount of uh, that amount of hash rate back online and then continue on the path toward Towards, um, you know, towards that that equilibrium. And so, put in other words, is that at the time of the China ban, so call that halfway through last year, I think it was around July, August or so of 2021, and we were talking about literally hundreds of thousands of Bitcoin mining machines that were being unplugged in China, sent overseas, and plugged back in. But as you were saying, the constraint in that case was also around what we might call rack space, that there's not enough buildings and racks and everything lined up where you can actually physically go and plug in all of those machines. So maybe that was where one of the scarcities was, at least at that point in time. Is that what you're getting at? Yeah, so we, we did the math. We found that at a minimum, there were 600,000 machines came offline during that time because you could see the hash rate drop and you could estimate. Um, and then you could then you could do a little bit more estimation and figure out like how much actual power that is to build out. Um, and I'm, I'm very surprised at the human ingenuity that was put into getting those machines back online. I didn't think we would break at 180 exa hash in uh, in 21 and we, we eclipsed that pretty easily so exactly like you said all those machines came offline and the problem wasn't that people didn't want those machines it's just that they didn't have nowhere they had nowhere to plug them in and and there's it takes a long time to build out these facilities and what of the question of guerrilla mining so i see there were a couple of news articles about this of people who are still in china and potentially they are using some means of masking or hiding their use of the power and potentially using say a vpn to 
VPN to other countries and then that hash rate looks like it's actually coming from another country, but actually it's still back in China. 100%. Yeah. So we learned about this and that was, I, I think that's one of the biggest, one of the biggest contributing factors to getting back to the hash rate that we are today is that people were figuring out ways, you know, our, our Chinese counterparts in in, uh, in Bitcoin mining in China, they're clever guys. They're going to folks, they're clever folks. They're going to figure out where, you know, some way to keep the, get those miners plugged back in. They're either going to work with their local municipality to shield them from the federal government, which is what, you know, we, I heard some stories of, of, uh, of folks that had their Bitcoin miners in effectively semi trucks and they would hear that, you know, oh, there's going to be a, a federal inspection of the grid now. So you got to get out of here. And so they would like move and then come back when it was, you know, when it was safe. And, you know, I've heard of that. And then, like you said, gorilla mining where they're, you know, they're so far off the beaten path that they're not worried about, you know, inspections or anything like that coming through uh, and, you know, either seizing their machines or, or um, you know, finding them or whatever it, it is that they're doing. Um, so yeah, 100% there, there is gorilla mining going on in China and we, you know, applaud them, you know, keep, keep those, keep those rigs on. I think that's, uh, we love to see it. We love to see it. And I, I really hope that, uh, you know, they can continue to do so. Also heard a little bit of news through the grapevine that they may be, I don't want to say unbanning mining, but they may be, or, or maybe they'd be unbanning it, but adding a, uh, an additional tax, which, you know, I'm not, not a huge fan of, of adding a tax, but if we can get down the path of getting China back online, I, I do think it's good for the network to have an equal distribution of hash rate around the world. Why, why do you believe that? What's, why is that a good thing? Yeah. So whether we like it or not, you know, Texas may be one of the, one of the freest places in the world and they, you know, they're going to stand up to the federal government if the federal government in the United States told Texas to turn off, they, they would just give them the finger and uh, and continue to do so. But that doesn't mean that it's not a possibility, uh, right? So what what that means is it, do, it doesn't really matter where the machines are located. I don't think that they are all going to forever be insulated from, you know, some sort of external power having uh, influence over them. So I'd like to see, you know, 10% in Texas, 10% in the rest of the United States, 5% in Canada, 3% in, you know, Central America, 10% in South America, uh, 15% percent in China, um, you know, 5% in Kazakhstan, etc, all around the world. So that way, it doesn't really matter, you know, Kazakhstan shuts down, 5% comes offline, just gets moved somewhere else, and, and no big deal. And we've seen that for sure happening now. But I do, I am a little concerned with how much we're getting here in the US. Uh, you know, we, you know, we, we always marketed ourselves as North, you know, North America's first mining pool and, uh, and, you know, the greatest North American mining pool. But, um, and, and I always said that, you know, North American mining is going to dominate, you know, the, the conversation over the next decade, but I didn't want it to be like this. I wanted it to be because we could compete, outcompete, uh, our Chinese counterparts, uh, and, and, you know, our global counterparts, but, um, but not because their governments, uh, shut them down. And on that topic of inter-country competition as well, because there was different, there were different views that I saw. Some people were saying, yeah, look, it's how great it is that all this hash rate is coming to the USA. And so perhaps in some sense, the patriotic element of it was there, but perhaps from the overall point of view of Bitcoin as the decentralized project, distributed project, that's where this argument of Actually, it's better if it's distributed out around the world. Yeah, I would say, um, you know, I, I was I was as happy as anybody to hear, you know, you know, my, my company directly profited, and, and you know, a lot of American companies directly profited from this happening. But uh, you know, my, my, my personal view on you know Bitcoin as a project is that you know, we want this to be as decentralized as possible. You know, the the, the you know the fewer machines in a single place. The more machines we can get, the better, and then don't put them all in the same place. Right. Yeah, I think I agree with you there. Uh, and with the aspect around regulation and the public perception of that, 
What do you believe are the best ways forward? Do you see it as education? Do you see it as Bitcoiners have to get involved in the political game, and if, even if they don't want to? Yeah, yeah. I think uh, I think we're going to see a I think we're going to see a Bitcoin a Bitcoin party a Bitcoin centric party uh, form in the U.S. and that'll start to craft whether we like it or not. Uh, American politics crafts a lot of the global uh, a lot of the global conversation, and so I think we 100% need to have a have a Bitcoin Bitcoin party. Um, whether that's one of the parties that exists today, I, I prefer it not be for be a new party or somebody that's you know able to come in and you know, really disrupt what's happening here. I, I do know that if we do get a Bitcoin denominated party over the long term, it'll be the best funded party that exists, uh, and so maybe that allows them to win uh, more. You know, kind of like uh, you know, kind of like Peter McCormick his his uh, his football team. I, I think they'll be one of the best funded football teams over the long term because they're denominated in Bitcoin. I, I think that this is you know this is the path forward for us. This is how we craft the conversation. We get a political party that is uh, Bitcoin denominated, and then start having those conversations bring them to bring them to the white house bring them to congress even your local even your local uh, governments you know it all starts local and then filters up uh, and i think you know we need to be having those conversations and, and we need to be talking to people about this so it's education and political activism uh, combined back to the show in a moment compass mining is the world's first and largest online marketplace for bitcoin mining hardware hosting and asic reselling bitcoin mining is only getting bigger and so is compass mining compass is adding over 280 megawatts worth of hosting capacity this year alone with more to come that's over six times compass's current hosting capacity meaning more people can mine bitcoin so with compass anyone can mine bitcoin start mining your own bitcoin by visiting compassmining.io today now, if you're thinking about upgrading your Bitcoin security to multi-signature, Unchained can help you, and in doing so, you can eliminate single points of failure. It might help you sleep at night. So with Unchained, you can bring two hardware wallets to the website and create a vault for free, and Unchained will be that third key, the cosigner, for you if you need them to be. Now, if you need assistance with this, they have a concierge onboarding program. So this concierge onboarding program can include hardware wallets if you need them, and it'll include a video call and some ongoing support to get you set up as well as teach you how to recover if something goes wrong. So unchained.com is the website. Go and select the concierge onboarding program and use the code LAVERA for a discount on your program. Coinkite.com are the creators of my favorite Bitcoin hardware wallet, the Cold Card. And there's a new one coming out. It's the Cold Card Mark IV. So in a recent episode with NVK, I spoke about it with him. And there's all sorts of new features coming like NFC, a faster processor, more RAM to handle bigger transactions. And you know, the Cold Card supports all kinds of different features. You can use it in single signature or multi-signature. You can use BIP85. You can use Seed XOR. You can use the Address Explorer feature to search and check that you are receiving into your address. There's just all kinds of features you can use. So go and explore. And I particularly like that new video that dropped. They've got that on the documentation page that teaches you how to use your cold card. So go to coinkite.com and use the code Levera to order your cold card with a discount. Back to the show. Right, because the way we all see it, we're all bullish on Bitcoin. And as we've agreed, price is going to go up. And if hash rate follows price, then necessarily there's going to be a lot more Bitcoin mining machines that get plugged in. And this conversation is only going to become more and more important and larger in the broader political world, whether we like it or not. And so that also brings that question then of whether Bitcoiners should be trying to make the argument, and I'm curious your view on this, should Bitcoiners be trying to make the argument of, oh, look, it's n not that much carbon emissions or it's lots of renewables? Or do you see it more like it should just be made on the, the principled argument of, you know, even if it was 100% fossil fueled mining, it would still be worth it? 
I think we could try to make that argument. I don't know if it would land. And being pragmatist, I would prefer to just take the easiest path to acceptance. And if that happens to include an ESG narrative, I'm happy to uh, I'm happy to uh, go go down that road. And I, I do agree with you that I, I think that 100%, even if we're all coal powered, uh, 100% dirty, I think that the value that Bitcoin brings to humanity and the globe is worth the cost. Because I, I don't think that there's been an innovation in the last decade that will that will change the planet more than Bitcoin, uh, it, it, what it brings to people uh, from an from a inequality perspective, from an equity perspective, it allows you to actually own something without anybody's intervention. That has no cost. So I do agree with you that I think that there is, there's really no cost or there's no price that you can put on this thing. Um, but I do think that it's a lot easier to tell the story that Bitcoin doesn't use that much energy and is green in, in all these different ways. So uh, that's the way that I would like to tell the story just because I think it'll be an easier one. But I think long term, we, we can tell the story that doesn't matter the, the price. And so the hope also is that those of us who see Bitcoin as this money of enemies or money for anyone to use, we also don't want to see it get regulated. And I suppose that's one of the arguments is that if we try to counter to the ESG narrative that potentially there might be more censorship coming down the line, whether that be whitelisting, blacklisting, other kinds of you may not participate unless you are XYZ or X percent level of renewable, right? Yeah, that's definitely, I mean, that's, it is a slippery slope, but I think that every slope that we live on is a slippery one. And so we have to figure out where it is, we're going to stake our foot, you know, and stop, stop the slipping. I think kowtowing to a, you know, an ESG narrative in the interim is, is okay. Uh, obviously not ideal, but you know, we're in, we live in a world of compromise where we, you know, we have to, you know, we, we live in a world where um, not everybody's going to agree on everything. And so if you can, you know, if you can get a majority to agree with you on one thing, um, try to use that majority to your advantage. And I, I do, I do think that over the long term, people will come around to this idea, especially as they start to own Bitcoin and Bitcoin just becomes more ubiquitous. You know, I think, I think adding things like, like strike pay is going to definitely change the way people think about Bitcoin because it will allow them to interact with a global monetary system almost frictionless. So I think in that, in that regard, I think it's just about getting a critical mass of people interested and involved. And from there, they're all view the value of Bitcoin is it doesn't how do I, I don't want to say price because that's not the price of Bitcoin, the price you have to pay for Bitcoin to exist, the value that you get from it is is vastly more as orders of magnitude greater. So thinking now about Bitcoin mining hardware, I'm sure you would have seen the recent news around Intel getting into the Bitcoin mining rig production and creation game. So I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on that or any uh, ideas on where that's going? Will they be competitive with the current uh, competitive Bitcoin mining manufacturers? Yes. Yeah, so we have heard a little bit about those machines. So I think that the I think that the consensus is right now that they'll probably fall somewhere between. So the, the S nineteen XP is the latest revision is the latest version of the the Bitmain miner. It's their their pinnacle machine, which is coming out. You know, it's supposed to come out in Q three. Hearing that it's probably going to slip to Q four uh, of this e of this year. And then their current model is the S nineteen J Pro, which is like their most efficient one. We think that it, it seems like the Intel is going to fall somewhere in between those two. So it's going to be a really competitive option. Uh, and really, now all they have to be able to do is, is compete on price, uh, price of the machine. If they can produce a machine that is lower cost per terawatt, uh, ter per terahash than, uh, than the S19 XP or the S19 J Pro, then they certainly will be competitive. People will buy the machine. I mean, people still buy S9s today, even though it's, it's at a much lower dollar per terahash number. But you know, S9s are from 2016-17. So I definitely think the Intel machine will be competitive. There are a couple of their pro or a couple of their barriers right now will 
will be one producing at scale, right? So I think Intel, you know, if there's anybody out there that can produce at scale, it's probably Intel. So they may have that one covered. You know, we've seen some other pop-ups come around that have not been able to produce any meaningful number of machines. Um, they produce a machine that's marginally competitive, maybe competitive with the latest gen uh, or maybe the previous gen, but they haven't been able to produce enough of those machines. So Intel, I think, will be able to. And then the next step that they have to do is be able to get chip space, which I think Intel should be able to do, no problem, right? They should be able to get uh, enough capacity in those in the foundries, you know, to produce enough chips. So I, I think that they'll definitely bring a, a machine to market. I think their machine is going to come to market. It's going to be competitive. And I, I think that they've got, you know, if the first run is even close to competitive, this, you know, that means the second one is going to be really good. So I think this is great for the space. It's a huge validator for everybody that's been around, you know, Intel, biggest chip maker in the world is going to come to market and, and try to, you know, compete here. I wouldn't want to be in Bitmain What's Miner shoes for sure. And how will this change the game of hardware procurement? Because as I understand today, you sometimes you have to go through a partner and I know obviously with Luxo you have um, um, hardware equipment procurement and advisory services so what does the current state of play look like for somebody who's trying to uh, purchase mining equipment from Intel. Well, I mean, just in generally, and then maybe we'll talk a little bit about what it looks like if, let's say, the market gets bigger and bigger. Okay, sure. Yeah. So, uh, so, so buying machines right now is uh, is definitely a, it's it's an interesting space. So, in general, uh, you you know, there's a couple ways you can buy machines. You can buy futures orders, meaning you buy, say, I want to buy a, a delivery of, of machines in Q3 of, of 2022. Uh, I need to buy a minimum amount, and they get delivered over each of the months during that during that quarter. Let's just say, let's use a, a round number. Let's say 1,500. I buy 1,500 machines. You Usually they'll come in batches of 500 over the course of that of that month. That can change. There's you know, all of this is very flexible. Um, so if anybody in the in the comments is uh, like, ah, that's not what I did. Well, it's because it's very very different for every order, and that's you know, what the the Luxor service is here to provide is like clarity on how diff- many different levers there are in this equation. So you buy these futures orders, you buy the machines. Well, you have to put up 60% of the order price. So right now that's like you know you're looking at let's just say around 15 million dollars if you wanted to buy 1500 machines. Probably gone down a little bit since the price of Bitcoin has gone down, but still, you have to put up 60% of that. And you just wire that to a Chinese entity. And if, if you're not working with a, with a broker, uh, there have been cases where that money just goes away. So Luxor comes in, provides you a level of security, uh, and makes sure that you know those machines, you know that, that, that money is actually going somewhere and is actually going to result in machines. So then once you put down your deposit, then within 30 days of your order uh, starting to, to, to be completed, so it would be within one month of the start of your quarter, you'll put down another 20% and then 20% upon ship to, to get them shipped. So that's how futures order generally works. That's not always the case. It's not always the case, but that's you know pretty much your uh, prototypical order. Now spot orders, meaning uh, I want to buy machines and I want them shipped now, generally are a hundred percent upfront. So if I wanted to buy fifteen hundred spot machines, wire my fifteen million dollars to somebody and they start shipping them within ten days. And so that's another you know again that. This is all very uh, un- unorthodox. You know, when you're producing uh, infrastructure equipment, you know, I'm, I'm certain that Dell and Intel, when they go buy their new servers for their data centers, have a little bit different process than that. But, uh, you know, that's that's happened. That's the world we live in. The mining manufacturers right now have all the power in the world because they have effectively money printing machines that people want to buy. They So, you know, we kind of have to play by their rules. So Luxor comes in and helps you uh, a bit in that regard. And that's all for new machines. Buying used machines just opens a whole new can of worms. It can be all over the place. So especially if you're buying like previous gens like S9 or S17, you end up losing a lot of machines because of they get damaged in shipping or, or they're not good from the start. So um, you know, Luxor provides a, a barrier there or a little layer of, uh, of assurance that you're actually going to get, you know, close to the number of machines that you attempted to order. So yeah, that's interesting, because I, it, it seems like if you are not already well connected in that world, 
and potentially also if you are a smaller per order person or like doing on smaller orders that's where maybe the value of having somebody to broker that for you helps more so whereas if you are a bigger player or you've already built those relationships then you might be in a better position to just go it solo yeah certainly like marathon probably doesn't need a broker they, they go out they buy you know a couple hundred they buy a hundred thousand machines they go direct to bitmain probably get um you know ceo on the phone and, and talk to them about it it doesn't even include like their secondary buyers in, in in china that you know go out and buy machines straight because they have the relationship with the with the manufacturer they go they buy you know say a hundred thousand orders uh and then they resell them for a profit uh, and that's usually where most of the machines are coming from is from these resellers and so it's, it's a very yeah it's a very disparate world, very difficult to navigate. And, and so really what the brokers are doing, you know, Luxor included, is just trying to provide you that layer of assurance. The machines you actually get and pay for are going to show up. Right. And so I'm curious then if you have any thoughts on how things change as the Bitcoin market and the mining market grows, does it then become a bit more like standard technology vendor relationships that exist today? Yeah, 100%. I think we're headed in that direction. We're maturing as a market for sure. And I think that we're going to continue to mature. It is a little bit play out, but yeah, I think we're headed in in a direction where this becomes a lot more egalitarian and, and a lot more transparent as well. Interesting. And I'm also curious as well if you have any thoughts around hardware life cycles, because this is an interesting one from years ago, because I guess I'm going to say my understanding, and you, you tell me if I've got that right. So in the earlier years of Bitcoin, because there was so much tech advancement happening so rapidly, the life cycles were much shorter. And then what's happening now, it seems, is that the life cycles are stretching out more that you are potentially having a, more and more years that you can use that machine. And so there are these circumstances where if you have very cheap power running on an S9 from 2016 or 17, as you were saying, it's, it's still quite profitable for people. But if you're operating on expensive power rates, then you really need the more efficient, newest, latest and greatest. So I'm curious... Where do you see that going with hardware life cycles? Is it going to sort of lengthen further? Obviously, there's all these variables out there, but just if you had to speculate. Yeah, certainly. So um, you hit the nail on the head. So the very you know early, early years of Bitcoin mining, we went from CPU to GPU to ASIC mining really, really fast. Like I, by the time I got my GPU rig up and running, there were, you know, bit, uh, not Bitfury, uh, Butterfly Labs was producing ASIC mining machines. Uh, and by the time I, I went and bought one, I bought a jalapeno, the little cube. And by the time that thing showed up, it was obsolete. And so we were just plowing through the series. And so what, what was actually happening underneath the hood is like we, they were probably producing chips that were, it's called a process. So they, they were 50 nanometer chips, probably 55 nanometer chips, which at the time, I mean, any, almost anybody could print those. You know, it, it really didn't take a, a genius to do. And so, but as the chip process gets smaller, it requires more and more expertise on how to produce those chips. And that's where we're seeing we're kind of bumping up against that that law. So now we're producing chips that are like five nanometer. And you can't really, there, there's like a theoretical limit. They think that you can only go down to three, maybe two nanometer chips. Um, so we're kind of bumping up against that hard limit uh, on, on the chip process. So as we were going from 55 to five, there was massive innovation. You know, that was, that was happening very, very quickly. And so that's why we burned through those first generation of machines in no time at all. The S9 came out, uh, landed and has, yeah, I mean, there's, like you said, those are still being used in production today from 2016 to 20, you know, 2016, 2017, those machines were produced. And then the S17, you know, there's public companies that are basing their entire business model around the S17 series. The S17 series did have its troubles. It was, they used a different 
manufacturing process, which caused them to be very delicate and breakable. But there are people that have built business models around fixing those machines and, and getting them at a discount and then fixing them and using them. Uh, and then the S19, I, I could see the S19 lasting for five to seven years easily because of the, uh, or sorry, the, the generation, not an individual S17 or S19 could break you know, at any time, but that generation, that series as a whole will probably last five to seven years just because of the, the marginal increase in efficiency is reducing to a point where uh, all I need to do is take my S19s and find a little bit cheaper power. You know, I need to only find five to 10% cheaper power to keep them on where before I would need to go find power that is 80% cheaper to continue running my, my old, old machines. So 100%, you hit the nail on the head with, with machine series and how, you know, how they're progressing. It's slowing down, certainly. And just that comment around the series, because there are many, I guess, S9s and S9s, and S19s. Could you just explain that for listeners? Why is there a difference between these? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's a good point. So there's, um, you know, in the, what we call the 19 series, there's like the S19, the S19J, S19J Pro, uh, S19 Pro, there's a T19, there's all these different uh, models within that series. They all have a little bit different price, a little bit different efficiency. And really that comes down to the the chips that they put on each board. Like each chip, you know, the, the chip in, you know, I'm using a MacBook here, uh, the chip in this MacBook and the chip in an identical MacBook are going to have different performance specs, very, very, you know, but, but it's going to be very small. And they keep them all within a range, but it doesn't mean they're going to be exactly the same. And so that's why they have these different series, these different uh, models within a series. And so like the 17 series, there's a T17 and S17 and S17T, like there's all these different series within the S17 and same with the uh, the S9. So that's why I call them series. Uh, it, it generally, there's like a bucket, you know, that they, they're, you know, the efficiency of the 19 series is somewhere between, you know, 32 and 36, uh, sorry, 36 and 42 uh, joules per terahash. And uh, let me see, I don't remember what the S17 is off the top of my head. But yeah, they're, you know, they, they fall within like an efficiency range. And, um, and that's why we call them series. Excellent. And so when it comes to actually procuring them, I guess that, that's why they're sort of bucketed in that way. Oh, that's the question as well. How about the difference in reliability? So how are you seeing that? Like, are there some manufacturers for which their, their equipment is more reliable and it can last longer or it's maybe easier to repair? Like the, let's say the Toyota Camry or the Honda Accord of the <laughs> Bitcoin mining world. Yeah. So the, the Honda Accord, uh, the S9 is the Honda Accord. Not the fastest, not the prettiest, man, that thing's going to run forever. Same with the Toyota Camry. So the S17 series I alluded to earlier had an issue with its manufacturing. So they used a different type of heat sink. Uh, actually, I believe it was the glue on the heat sink was uh, not up to par. And so what would happen is during a during shipment, the heat sink would rattle loose and the, mach- the, the heat sink is like a little thing that attaches to the chip and gets the, uh, uh, gets the heat out and it would rattle loose and then the chip would just melt, right? So, you know, the same thing would happen to your MacBook or any other machine that has uh, a chip in it, has a heat sink on it. If that heat sink is, rattles loose, the chip's going to melt. And so that was happening to the S17s and, and they have a failure rate very, very high. It's not because the machines themselves, the chips or anything about the, the chip boards themselves is bad, it's that the heat sink was not produced correctly. So ex- just like you said, there's definitely variance within series. Um, you know, the S9 uh, it was, it was a really good series. There was not a lot of manufacturing defects with the S9s uh, and we're seeing the S19s are also really, really good. Uh, and now across uh, manufacturers, so uh, the S series, those are all uh, Bitmain machines. Uh, there's also a, a brand called What's Miner. And those what, What's Miner machines we've seen have generally been very high quality. They, they, it doesn't seem like they've really had a bad series like the like the 17 series. They've had, you know, they have the, the M30 series. The, the Theirs is, uh, is equivalent to the S19. And it seems like the, the failure rates on those are really, really... It's not really possible to put an exact failure rate on these things. You, it's all anecdotal, right? So it'd be like me asking my friends or, you know, uh, 
um, talking to uh, you know, people about you know what what kind of machines they use and how many failures they have. And, and there's so much nuance there because you know the the machines running in a an immersed building versus machines running in a you know in an air cooled facility out in the middle of the desert are gonna have vastly different life cycles or uh, lifetimes. And it's hard to it's really hard to pinpoint exactly what. Uh, what the life like what the lifetime of a machine is and on this question of lifetime as well i think that's the other argument that i've heard as well around this demand response so bringing back to the demand response question as i understand when you it's just like with other you know if you if you're running a car on the highway and it's just on all the time that's efficient but if you're in the in the city and you stop starting all the time it's not as efficient it's less you know it's going to take more fuel and is there a similar impact there for that demand response miner, for example, even in Texas, as an example, are they going to see reduced lifetimes on their mining equipment? And is that going to be an issue? Yeah. So um, we don't know. First, first of all, I mean, anybody that says they know uh, for a fact uh, doesn't because we, we haven't done this at scale for a very long time yet. So we're not 100% certain. Uh, if we look at, you know, if we look at just chip technology as a whole, there shouldn't be any, you know, there shouldn't really be any degradation uh, of, of lifetime or performance. Basically, if a chip is producing, is, is using energy, uh, as long as it stays cool, it should last just as long as it <clears throat> So in the case of lifetime, it's very difficult to say for a fact, but most likely not. It probably will not affect the lifetime time of the machines. Um, as for energy efficiency, no, I don't believe I don't believe there's any because it's it's, it's actually it's more like a battery. It's like a battery that is actually it's actually more like a negative battery. You turn you, you if you if you go around the Bitcoin mining facility, you know, say you've got like you know these uh, a big hose and it's going through the facility and all of the you know the energy that's flowing through it is going into Houston. Well, if you route the hose around the facility, the energy just still goes into Houston. The facility powers down for a bit, and then when it's time to turn back on, the hose just flips back over. I don't I, I, I don't think there's any major performance impact to to the efficiency of the machine you know the efficiency of the the mining facility or or, or anything like that um, also the curtailment periods are generally I don't want to say brief but they're infrequent you know they, they don't it's not happening like multiple times a day it, it usually is something that happens for a period of time and then stops and then I don't think we you don't you don't get it for very very frequently so that's I, I guess that would be the answer to that question but yeah it's a great question and I know that um, you know we're gonna have to get more data on this and so I'd urge anybody that is doing demand response to try to keep as much data as you can and uh, and and you know try to produce a a valid you know a good report that we can use down the line and uh, I guess one other topic I was keen to touch on as you mentioned earlier, around hash rate derivatives and financial products being built around Bitcoin mining. And you mentioned this is a priority for Luxor as well. So maybe if you could just touch on some of that, like what kind of products do you see coming uh, in the industry for this? Yeah, so so I think the very first one is going to be a physically delivered forward swap. What that means is, you know, I, I, you know, I, I, I have a bunch of machines that I want to sell forward some hash rate for. So I go and I sell forward 100, let's say 100 pet hash. That'll be, you know, on the order of a, you know, be a couple million bucks. I bring those, I bring that forward and I get to reinvest it immediately and, and start buying more machines, buying more infrastructure, etc. And then the buyer is incentivized to purchase that hash rate because they think they can get, they can get it at a discount. They can get Bitcoin at a discount by doing so. Then we think that as enough volume of these physically delivered forward swaps gets put on and occurs, then eventually you will need to hedge that risk. So if I'm, you know, if I've sold some of my hash rate forward and the value of that hash rate goes up, I've effectively sold, I've effectively shorted my hash rate. I 
can go and purchase what we call ca- a cash settled future to hedge that. So if, you know, if, I, if it starts moving away from me, I can go and purchase a cash settled future that when it settles is, you know, it, it will help me hedge out the value of my underlying production. We think those are two of the most important primitives for this space. I think there's going to be a lot of different primitives that come down the line. There's going to be like a forward future, meaning I sell forward hash rate that doesn't exist yet. So I say in, um, you know, I'll give you, I'll sell you 100 pet hash a hash rate that comes online May 1st and I will sell it to you for three months. You know, you'll probably get some discount in your incentivization for taking that risk is that you'll get a discount on the value of the underlying. Um, and then again, you can start building in really long futures for this and, and, and that sort of thing. So I think these are some of the very basic primitives that we'll need. Uh, and you can see this happen in pretty much every other commodities market. So oil, uh, energy, corn, uh, I mean, hell, pig, pig bellies all have futures markets and they, they, they also have um, you know physically delivered cash settled, all different types of products. And we're really starting to hone in on what the market demands for these products. Uh, it does require quite a large tech stack to do. So like actually settling these forward contracts requires um, a pretty a pretty robust tech stack as well as the ability to do advanced like financial reporting and the ability to produce uh, some cogent model at the end that demonstrates, yes, this amount of hash rate was actually delivered. And here's the result of that hash rate uh, in, in terms of Bitcoin or, or dollars. Really interesting to think about. And maybe just as an example, just to make it real. So let's say I'm a potential, I'm a Bitcoin miner and I want to do my forward planning and I, re- I need some certainty in my business planning. And then I might go to you and say, hey, Nick, I want to sell you my future hash rate. And you're, let's say you're a trader, you're taking the other side of that trade and you're saying, hey, Stefan, okay, give me a discounted rate on that future hash rate and I'll pay you some money upfront for that privilege. And then I take that money and I'm going away and using that to build my mining farm. And that then is kind of the basis for this. And so that's kind of that first product you said. Exactly. Yeah. And that's what we call a physically delivered forward swap. Um, and the idea there, like you said, is um, the buyers incentivize the trader, speculators incentivized to do so because they think they can get it at a discount. And then the seller gets to bring forward a bunch of revenue and reinvestment, reinvested in infrastructure or buying new machines or unlocking a new project. Uh, I think this is going to be one of the most exciting ways that miners can fund their projects in the future. You know, once we've got a more robust system, you know, somebody comes to uh, somebody says, hey, I've got the ability to produce X amount of hash rate. I need this level of capital. Right now, they have to go get a very expensive loan or, or, or figure out how to raise capital for that. They can just sell it to the open market. Really fascinating to see and I'm curious to see where that goes and what kind of markets evolve for this like will we have some kind of centralized exchange provider for that or will it be kind of a more decentralized model where there's let's say different bitcoin mining companies who are offering this as a product or some kind of service like to match between the miner and the trader so we view the first one like we've seen this a bit already for um you know there's some folks offering like a bespoke otc product around this like the ability to you know basically it's a it's you know a one-off type of contract that's originated between two parties using a a third party uh intermediary uh someone like beruda is doing this and um we've seen that uh in the i think right now the the holdup that's causing them from breaking through to that next level is the ability to service the contracts, which um, you know, requires a pretty large tech stack, which Luxor fortunately has the ability and the uh, expertise to build. So we're we're on the track to building these things and, and really looking forward to um, you know to, to bringing these to market over the next uh, over the next uh, probably won't be twelve months because it's it's also a very regulated type of uh, of endeavor. Um, but over the next I would say eighteen months, start to see something like this happen. 
Well, I'm excited to see where that goes. I think we've um, pretty much hit the time for this episode. So, Nick, where can people find you online and uh, follow what you're what you're doing? Yeah, so you can find Luxor at Luxor.tech. Um, from there, pretty much all of our product pages are uh, uh, available. Uh, you you want to you know yell at me for saying hashtag follows price or or any of the other dumb things that I've said today? You can find me at hash underscore bender on Twitter. Or if you want to go uh, take a follow along uh, the Luxor, we have a at Luxor Tech Team and at Hash Rate Index. So come give us a follow. Uh, let's chat about this. This is one of my favorite things to talk about. So uh, if you have something interesting, uh, I'm certain that we can find uh, a topic to discuss. So really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me on. Thank you, Nick. So what do you think about the Bitcoin mining narratives and demand response, as well as the general concerns around ESG? Just a reminder, if you haven't already and you're enjoying the show, make sure you leave a review so that other people can find the show. Thanks, and I'll see you in the Citadels.